and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Azania Jarvis, and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads, and everything in between. My guest this week is Libby Page. Libby is just 27, but has already written two hit novels, the Sunday Times bestseller The Lido, and now The 24-Hour Café. She has also worked both in fashion journalism and in marketing, and briefly lived in Paris after quitting her job and renting an Airbnb for six weeks, which sounds pretty dreamy. I love Libby's writing. It's so warm and evocative, and I'm delighted to have her here today. So Libby, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Let's start with the 24-hour cafe. How would you describe it for us? So I'd say the 24-hour cafe is uh, really at the heart, it's a story about female friendship. So it tells the story of waitresses and friends, Hannah and Mona, who both work at the cafe, but um, dream of more in life, really. So Mm. both have kind of creative passions. And it's the story of their friendship as it gets tested, but also um, about the characters that come in through the doors of the cafe throughout a 24-hour period. So, um, you know, what brings them there, their backstories, um, and hopefully a kind of snapshot of humanity, really. Um, you said so much there that I want to follow up on, uh, starting with the 24-hour the period. Uh, I was really struck by that when I was reading it, because you really keep the pace going, but it's only set in one day one 24-hour period was that quite difficult to do yeah I think compared to the Lido where I guess it's more of a clear narrative structure um I think the editing of this book took a lot longer and the the first draft compared to the final book are quite different um oh, I had a big pinboard in my office with each hour and then what was happening in each hour and oh, wow. it was kind of like putting a jigsaw puzzle together because I guess I wanted it to feel like a satisfying narrative where you really get to know Hannah and Mona and, and the bulk of it really is their story, but then to weave in all the other characters as well. Um, and in a way that feels realistic. So some of them are sort of chance encounters and you see glimpses of them and they disappear in the same way that, you know, if you are in a cafe, you might overhear a conversation, but then never get to hear the end of it. But I also wanted to have some that you loop back to and you kind of get hopefully mm. a satisfying resolution and an understanding of where their story's gone. So yeah, getting that balance of Hannah and Mona's story, but also the um, the main character, the other um, supporting characters was quite challenging, but an interesting challenge. With Hannah and Mona, one of the things that I found really intriguing was the fact that in exploring their friendship, you didn't just... Uh, look at the kind of the love and the good things. You also looked at the, the the jealousy and without giving too much away, you know, one of them's an aspiring dancer, the other's an aspiring singer, and that can create a degree of tension. They're both going up for jobs. Sometimes they get them, sometimes they don't. You know, there's there's a relationship that causes some a romantic relationship that causes some tension. And so as a result, you also get an insight into the the kind of ill will that they sometimes Mm. bear one another or the resentment. Because, I mean, particularly in books over the past few years, female friendship has been sort of commodified as this kind of shiny, happy thing. Did you deliberately want to explore the darker elements in that sense? I think I just wanted to explore female friendship in all its kind of truth, really. I think Mm. I set out wanting to write... I guess something of a love story, um, but about female friendship rather than romantic love, Mm. because I think, 
you know, so often, um, you know, romantic books, it's, you know, boy meets girl and, you know, they live happily ever after, which, you know, I enjoy reading those books as well. But I think to explore a friendship and how actually there can be so many parallels. So I think, you know, that moment of falling in love with um, a romantic partner, I certainly think it can be very similar to falling in love with friends, you know, when you meet someone and you want to know everything about them and spend all your time together. But on the other hand, I think um, friendships can go through challenges in the same way that um, romantic relationships can. And, you know, you can go through periods with your friends where you're perhaps not so in sync or, you know, where you argue. And, And I also think that, you know, the prospect of an end of a friendship can be something like grief, really. And I think it's not Mm. something that we talk about that much, but Mm. I, you know, we have, I guess the language to describe a romantic um, breakup and, you know, the idea of someone sitting in their pajamas and eating a tub of ice cream because they've just, you know, been dumped is Mm. kind of something that we kind of accept and, and think of. Whereas to think of that for a friendship, I think it absolutely happens and it can feel just as raw and and difficult, but Mm. perhaps we don't talk about that so much. So yeah, Mm. I definitely wanted to explore both sides and and in the book you have the first half is from Hannah's perspective and the second half is from Mona's and I hope through that I kind of explore the idea of you know sometimes in a friendship your perspective on on how things have gone and conversations you've had can be very different to then the other person and Mm. kind of perhaps how you need to all be a bit more aware of actually you know you're just seeing you're just thinking of the one side of the story and there often is a things have been received in a very different way mm-hmm. it's actually your second book as I said the Lido was your first and it was this huge sensation it became a Sunday Times bestseller it was on all the kind of hotly anticipated lists for the year what was it like getting so much attention like that on your first book was it just sort of fun and wonderful or was it also quite stressful and overwhelming at times um, I mean it was certainly a huge surprise to me really you know I'd been working in a marketing job and and writing on the side and although I'd always wanted to be an author I think I had no illusions that it would be easy I kind of thought you know I'll always write but the thought of actually making it my career was something that you know maybe I had as a dream like way down the line after publishing many books so to be able to quit my job on the basis of of the Lido was like an amazing thing it was a dream come true and you know so much of it has just been amazing that to be able to write every day, which is a thing that I love to do, um, is amazing. I guess in terms of the other things, I guess it was just a shift in my life. Um, Mm. So some of the things that I did struggle with were going from working in a busy office with all my friends to then just sitting at home in front of Mm. my laptop. You know, Mm. that shift was quite difficult and I did find it quite isolating. And over time, I've really adapted to that and now actually really enjoy it and, and also seek out people as much as I can so I go and work in cafes hence probably Mm. the inspiration Mm. for this book so just to try and be around other humans because it can be quite an an isolating job really yeah and I I guess in some ways I feel the pressure more with the second one actually because I feel like with the Lido I thought maybe just my family would read it whereas now I'm so fortunate to have had readers get in touch Mm. saying they've enjoyed the Lido um, which is the best feeling but I also really want to you know, I don't want to disappoint them. I want to make sure they enjoy this mm. one as well. Mm. Um, but hopefully, I mean, so far the reviews from readers have been positive. So that's very encouraging. Uh, you were often cited as an example of, of uplit, a kind of new genre. First of all, I mean, to anyone unfamiliar, can you explain that term? And secondly, how do you feel about it? 
So uplit essentially means uplifting literature. So um, I guess it's books where friendship, community are at the heart and um, where although you, you're kind of taken on an emotional journey, hopefully it's sort of overall um, a positive, enjoyable, um, hopeful um, experience reading it. Um, in terms of how I feel about it, I guess there's always going to be a term, isn't there? It's mm. sort of, and in some ways, you know, my job is just to write the book and then it's my publisher's job to do the marketing. And, mm. and in some ways, I'm so glad that they do that because although I've worked in marketing, the thought of having to come up with a marketing campaign for my own book is a very different thing because you're, mm. so, you're so close to it that it's hard to distance yourself enough to, you know, come up with terms and think about who the ideal reader would be and things like that. I guess in some ways, like people often ask me, you know, did you set out to write an uplit book? And I guess, I mean, firstly, the term didn't exist when I was writing it. (laughs) But on the other hand, I guess it's not totally surprising because I've always been a real optimist. So Mm. I think that's just my outlook on life. So the fact that I've written books that, although they have darker elements in, in them, are overall hopefully hopeful and optimistic I think you know that's just who I am really as a person mm, mm, mm. what were you like as a child you say you've always been a, an optimist and that you'd always wanted to be an author what made you interested in in writing what was your childhood like I guess I was and I think all writers start as readers first and foremost so I just absolutely loved reading as a child and I think there was a moment when I realized oh these books that I read someone's written them and that's an actual job that you Mm. can do and I think from that moment I decided that that's what I wanted to do so I was always writing stories and poems I went on these very nerdy writing camps for children that were just they had the best time you know going and um, being set writing assignments and you know hanging out with lots of other children who loved reading and writing um, I sus- subscribed to a young writer magazine which I think sadly isn't in existence anymore but they did lots of competitions and things I entered so yeah it was definitely a big part of my life and yeah I guess in some ways more a, more an indoors sort of person um, mm. I mean now exercise and getting outdoors is so important to me but yeah as a child I think I was much more likely to be inside with my head in a book or kind of scribbling away at a story than outside. And you studied fashion journalism at university uh, and then and then you're at the Guardian for a year working as a journalist is that right? Yes. Um, Yeah so how did that come about where did that interest come from? um, So I think although I have always wanted to be an author I think as I got a bit older I realised you don't necessarily just go out and become an author and that becomes your full-time job you know I read all the statistics about how few books that get written actually get published and Mm. how few writers then make a living out of it so I thought I would do journalism because it felt to me like you know still writing but more of a proper job Mm-hmm. Um, although I think maybe I have always been a bit of a dreamer because now I think actually how few people make manage to make a career out of fashion journalism. <laughs> I think it wasn't really the most uh, kind of sensible choice. But, you know, I've always loved clothes and fashion and fashion history. And, and I guess the kind of social and cultural aspect of it, of, you know, why people put on what they put on in the morning and all of that, I find interesting. But I think when I was doing the course, I came to realise that actually fashion journalism wasn't for me. I did a lot of internships and then ended up campaigning um, for fair internships, which is what led me to the job at The Guardian, which is in their students section. So um, I wrote some articles for them about unpaid internships when I was studying and then kind of got in in that way. And I did enjoy it. There were certainly aspects of it that I really enjoyed, but it meant that I had less time for the creative writing. and less headspace for it, really, that I think when you're writing all day at work, I didn't really feel inclined to come back and 
write my own stuff. So that's what then made me shift to marketing just to have more of a kind of nine to five job where I could then use my own time to to do my creative writing and that's so interesting because there are so many journalists who then write books as I know mm. because <laughs> I've had so many yeah. on the podcast and yet yes I've, I've read interviews with you in the past where you said that uh, sort of writing professionally meant that you couldn't really write uh, creatively yeah um, and, I, and I think um, you know I admire people so much who manage to make journalism their career because it is tough you know it's Mm. not particularly well paid it's very competitive and I think you know that thing of always having to be kind of fighting for your name on a byline although Mm. I'm a very driven person I'm not someone who can really you know put my elbows out and you know in a environment where you've got lots of young people competing for the same jobs and the same Mm. articles I found that quite difficult and Mm. um, I think I'm someone that I'd much rather just go away and on my own sit down and write a book than um, than that kind of environment. Um, but yeah, I think also just the work-life balance that doing a job where, you know, it was more nine to five and mm. and where I was definitely using my brain, but not in the same way, um, mm. I think actually worked really well. And I think mm. it's not a surprise that it was in the marketing jobs that I started writing the Lido because I just, yeah, I guess I just felt happier and I had more time and more headspace and therefore felt more creative and able to kind of put that time into into writing the novel and and how did you fit it in what was your kind of routine because I gather there were sort of mornings evenings and lunch yeah. break sessions <laughs> yeah. so tell me about that um I'm a real morning person so I know of lots of writers who will you know write into the early hours of the morning but um you know I, I can't pass you know about eight o'clock in the evening I'm no, good for I'm nothing yeah. <laughs> um so yeah I'd set my alarm for an hour early in the morning get up and do some work so what time um, would that be so I guess about you know I guess six I'd be up and I was very fortunate I live very close to my office Mm. so um yeah I guess from six till seven half seven I'd be writing and then um get ready for work and go into the office um I'd bring my laptop in and on my lunch breaks would go and sit in a cafe or in the um in the canteen um and then you know weekends holidays and I remember times of having to turn down social things with friends at the weekends because Mm. I realised actually if I'm ever going to get this done I do need to make it a priority Mm. and I think especially once I'd made a good amount of progress with it I think when you've written maybe a couple of thousand words it's quite demoralising to think and you don't necessarily give it the the time whereas when you're sort of say halfway through you think oh actually you know this could be something I need to really prioritise it. How did people take that when you did turn down things? Because it's really difficult, especially if you've never had something published, to be like, well, I'm so sorry, I'm not going to make your (laughs) birthday party because I've got a pipe dream that might come to nothing. (laughs) I mean, I hope to think I was still a good friend and I would always go to people's birthday parties. I guess it's just, you know, weekends of not not filling them with plans and making sure I did carve out some time because I think so often you have these dreams, but actually there's also a practical element of it of to get a book finished you have to sit down and write a certain Mm. number of words and that does take time um but all my friends and family they know that's what I've always wanted to do so Mm. I think people were really supportive and understanding and and it kind of made sense to them it's it's funny because when the book deal was announced I think you know there's a lot of people who ask me you know how did you do it you've never studied creative writing you know where did it come from and but then to my friends and family, although the scale of it has been, you know, a happy surprise, the fact that I wrote a book isn't a surprise because it's, you know, that's just what I've always, always wanted to do. So 
Yeah, and no, you did go to all those camps. Yes. So it wasn't a secret. You were quite open that that's what you were doing. I, I, you know, you were keeping time free for that. Yeah. And I think that I know some people, um, some writers prefer not to sort of say that they're working on something, um, I guess, in case it sort of is a flop. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess for me, it partly made it real and made it something serious and and not I didn't think that it was going to get published it's just I wanted to write a novel I wanted to have that satisfaction of starting something and finishing it and and I guess showing that to myself that I could do it um with the thought that then over time you know I'd write other things and hopefully just improve over over time so I think part of saying yes I'm writing something even if I didn't say I'm writing a novel it's kind of makes it real and then makes me more accountable yeah exactly um was it quite hard to concentrate in those little snippets and also sort of in cafes in the canteen I mean do you have any way of focusing in those environments in an hour and a half it's not very much time to get into a kind of flow an hour and a half in the morning Um, an hour at lunch I mean it was challenging but I guess writing and certainly now that I'm doing it full time I I sometimes feel like oh I need to be chained to my desk from you know nine in the morning till five at night but I do find it quite tiring because you're using your brain you know Mm. you're creating something out of nothing and so actually sometimes even now I write in bursts of you know an hour or two and it's Mm. because that's how long my my brain can kind of focus on just doing something that yeah intense really but it was difficult and that's partly why I saved up and uh went to Paris because I kind of wanted to carve out some time where that's all I was doing and to really focus on getting it finished. So can you tell me about that how did that come about and what was your life like in Paris it's such a romantic idea (laughs) um so yeah I I knew I wanted to take some time and focus on um on writing so I just saved up from my job and then um quit my job and went to (laughs) found an Airbnb over there my best friend lives in Paris so um I stayed near her and yeah I mean it was an amazing experience I've always loved Paris and I mean maybe it's a cliche but I thought why not you <laughs> know you're going mm. to go and write uh, your novel anywhere why not do it in Paris um so yeah I would um typically write in the morning and then I'd go and maybe find a new swimming pool to swim in or go to a um there are some amazing libraries in Paris that I um would sit and work in sometimes I mean it was challenging as well it was quite isolating that although I had my friend there she obviously had her full-time job um Mm. and I didn't really know anyone else and because all I was doing was writing I wasn't then meeting people you know through a job or anything like that so yeah it definitely wasn't all this kind of dreamy um kind of vision that I'd perhaps imagined that it would be but the main thing was I did um you know get the bulk of the book finished there so that was um you know that's why I had gone really so yeah it was definitely a good experience and was this your first attempt at a novel and when I say this I mean the Lido was it your first attempt at a novel yes yeah so when you came back from Paris what was your path then towards publication I know you spent a year sending out the manuscript to agents and and almost gave up how did you persevere um so I came back from Paris um essentially for a job I needed to you know have get a job again (laughs) to start paying the bills and um but I was nearly finished with the book then, so just had a bit more to do in that new job. And then, yeah, started sending it out to agents. And it certainly felt like a very long year. Mm. Um, I sent it to 
I don't know exactly how many, but at least 20 agents mm-hmm. um, and received some nice feedback saying, you know, they liked the writing, but didn't feel strongly enough about it. A lot of straight out rejections, a lot of people who never got back to me. And yeah, it was difficult because you feel like it's something you've put so much into and it has so much of yourself in it that you can't help but take it personally. It feels like a personal um, rejection. And at the end of that year, I was definitely kind of ready to stop on it I thought Mm. okay I'll maybe shelve this book and write something else and go back to the agents who've said nice things but you know who ultimately didn't want to represent me and see if I had better luck with that and it was at that point that I read about a new literary agency being set up and that they were actively looking for new clients then looked into it and saw one of the agents represented Sarah Winman who's one of my favorite authors um so it felt like okay this is a good last one to um to try with and I mean, amazingly, it was the one that worked. You know, mm-hmm. I heard back from my now agent in a couple of hours from my introductory email saying, you know, he really loved the sound of it and could I send the full manuscript? And then a few weeks later was we- meeting and signing with him, did some more edits and then sent it out to publishers. So yeah, it definitely was a strange experience and I guess showed to me the importance of perseverance and mm. and finding the person who really believes in you that that's what's going to sell it to publishers if you have someone who's really enthusiastic looking back I'm really glad that although I was really sad when those other agents rejected me I think you don't want someone who is sort of lukewarm about you you want someone who is really gonna you know champion you were you tempted when you topped the bestseller list to get back in touch with all those agents that rejected you and go, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Of course not. I would never do that. Um, oh, although no, very sweetly, had. actually, um, <laughs> one agent did get in touch with me. It was someone who had expressed interest, but had, was just taking quite a long time to read it and had kind of kept saying, yeah, I'm still reading it. I'm still interested. Um, and she very sweetly got in touch and said, I, you know, I should have read, I should have sped up on reading it. Um mm. And, you know, wish me congratulations, which was really nice for her because, you know, I also know these agents are inundated with submissions and, you know, mine just went on the slush pile, which I mean, I think is kind of a horrible term because it's really just how normal people get published. You know, if you don't have any contacts or anything, Mm. you just um, send in and and hope that people will... um, you know read it and find it interesting but yeah I mean I'm just so happy with how things have turned out and so happy with my agent that I definitely don't feel any any resentment towards the people that turned me down at all probably probably for the best probably probably not the way to to get ahead in the literary world cold revenge the um the film rights you sold the film rights what's the state of play with that so the state of play is I have sold the film rights (laughs) um I I I must admit I don't really know that much about the film industry but my impression is that these things can take a long time to actually um come into fruition but certainly it's very exciting um that a film company want to try and make it happen and um you know believe that a story could work on screen so yeah it's very exciting but something that's kind of happening in the background really and where do you get your inspirations from? You mentioned, you know, working in a cafe and now you've written a book about a cafe. How much do you, and I asked this question with some trepidation because, I, you know, a lot of authors don't like to be asked how much they draw in their real life. And also it is often asked of female authors mm. and thought to be a kind of gendered question. But just because you mentioned the, the kind of cafe side and also Paris, which does come up in, mm. in the 24-hour cafe, how much do you draw on your life and your surroundings I think I mean I think all writers do I think the gendered part is people assuming that you are the characters in your book and I definitely Mm. get that a lot and 
you know, although I put aspects of myself into the book because I'm the person writing it, you know, it is all my imagination and they're all made up, you know, people and scenarios. Um, but that said, I think obviously what you have to to draw on is your life and the world around you. And, and also I think I want to write things that hopefully feel true and relatable. And I think in order to do that, you have to draw on an element of truth, whether that's, mm. you know, something you've experienced and channeling that emotion into a character who's very different from you, but who kind of has perhaps felt the same feelings that you have or um, through a situation that you've observed in life um, and then kind of putting that into a new context. And certainly with the 24 hour cafe, because there are so many characters a lot of those are based on, you know, conversations I've overheard or, um, you know, things that have happened throughout my life and that kind of go in and all get mixed up and then kind of come out again in, in hopefully, a, you know, a different form, but with an element of truth to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I think I'm someone who I'm just so fascinated by people and their stories. Um, so, you know, whenever I'm sat on a bus or in a cafe, I'm always thinking, you know, what's the story there and, and who's who are they and what's going on so but that I guess is the the kind of imagination wearing away and then there will be things that happen in my own life that also you kind of want to write about because it's a way of I guess understanding things and and certainly with the Lido I found um so for example writing about panic attacks um Mm. which is something I've experienced I found very I don't know if therapeutic is the right word it felt um quite a powerful experience because I felt like in some ways I was kind of taming that and taking control of it by taking my experience of something real and turning it into a work of fiction. Mm. Mm. And how did it change your kind of relationship with panic and anxiety then once you'd done that? I mean, was it a sort of, presumably it wasn't some kind of silver bullet for no. mental health. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, that. I think that's something doctors would be prescri- prescribing if all you have to do is write down your experiences and suddenly, um, you know, you're cured. I mean, on the other hand, there is a lot of research into the power of writing things down, writing down your emotions, that they can be helpful. But yeah, obviously, it's not going to cure everything. And yeah, I mean, anxiety, panic attacks are still things that kind of crop up in my life. But I guess I feel less... Um, like it controls me less now that yes it's something that happens but that I and also I have a language to speak about whereas I think you know when I wrote the Lido I hadn't really told anyone in my life that I'd ever had a panic attack you know my Mm. very close family and my then boyfriend now fiance knew but lots of my friends didn't and Mm. actually one of the great things about writing the book was then people in my own life but also readers saying oh yeah you know I've gone through that too and people that you wouldn't necessarily expect and it just felt like a kind of opening up of a conversation really well I definitely I think I mean particularly in your 20s and 30s that sort of time of transition and change can be very anxiety inducing and Mm -hmm. and actually interestingly I think probably again say once you've got those kind of upheaval of kids and stuff and then probably again once you've got the upheaval Mm -hmm. of leaving work those sort of those times of change just Mm -hmm. based on friends and family yeah. I, they, you know that this does seem to be quite a widespread experience I mean if you don't mind my asking when did that start for you I think it started mainly when I moved to London and I'd grown up in a really small town where you you know you kind of say hello to everyone and it's all mm. um very um very friendly a real community feel I mean looking back I think my mental health is always something that I have kind of, I don't know if struggled with is the right word because, you know, it's not something that I've ever 
gone to a doctor about or you know been diagnosed with anything in particular but it's definitely something that has been a part of my life and Mm. as a teenager I was very stressed I put a lot of pressure on myself but the panic attack specifically started when I moved to London and I Mm. think that feeling of suddenly being in a huge place being overwhelmed um, but then again when I left university I think Although being at university, it's kind of one step up from being at home, then being kind of thrown out into the real world, you know, that's another extreme. And Mm. that's, um, yeah, I guess in my first job, that was kind of when it was probably at its worst, Mm. is just trying to, and just trying to find your place in the world. I think Mm. people underestimate how difficult that is. And certainly I felt the pressure of, you know, your early 20s, it's supposed to be the best time of your life. And I looked around me and thought, oh yeah, everyone else seems to be having a great time. Why am I not? And it's only now that I talk to my friends who I thought were having an amazing time and realise, oh, actually mm. they weren't. And, you know, mm. they were struggling with their own things as well. So, mm. but I'm so glad that people are talking more honestly about these things now mm. because it's such a, you know, it's a part of life and a part of life for a lot of people that I think talking about it is important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you for, thank you for opening up on that. The, um, working from home of course you know can present its own challenges in that way what's your routine in your ways you mentioned that you really value exercise as Mm. as a way of getting out and and things what's your life like now that you are a full-time writer so yeah I mean exercise is hugely important to me um just for managing my kind of well-being and also getting out of the house so I guess I don't really have a set routine because Mm. I think one of the joys of working for yourself is that you can have that flexibility and I think I wouldn't want to feel like I was back in an office job because Mm. I force myself to get to my desk at nine o'clock and I have to be dressed in smart clothes I mean working from home is also amazing that you can just wear like your exercise clothes and pajamas I have to say (laughs) I I feel like I should shoehorn in a mention of your jumper at this stage which is which is amazing and says read more books on it (laughs) yeah so cozy cozy jumpers and leggings I'm not wearing leggings right now I did actually put on proper trousers to to go and see but yes I guess I go out and do some exercise so running or swimming and then sit down and and get to work I tend to write I guess until the afternoon um if I'm really into it, I'll keep going. But I think over time I've realised that it's important to stop as well and to just go out and be in the world and go to a cafe, go to an exhibition, do something else. Um, I think when I first made that shift to writing full time, I felt like I had to be at my desk the same amount of hours that I'd been in the office. And mm. whereas now I kind of base it on my productivity so I'll have a set word count and sometimes I hit that in a couple of hours sometimes it takes all day sometimes it doesn't even happen and I just have to go actually you know what today's a write-off tomorrow I'll start again and yeah I think it it definitely took some adjustment but I feel so lucky now to be able to work from home I think I'd struggle to, to go back into an office that I think and I have always been quite independent I think to be able to dictate my own time and how I spend the day is is a real joy really. What is the word count you aim for each day? Um, so usually I say a thousand words is the kind of minimum, but usually it's 2000 um, okay. is like a, you know, that's a a good sort of a normal good day. Whereas if it's if I'm really I think, OK, if I at least get a thousand words done, um, although I'm actually editing at the moment and that's harder to judge because it's not as clear cut as how many words have no. you taken out or how many words have you changed. So I do find that a bit harder because I feel like I get back into oh well how many hours have I done today whereas I know that that isn't really a a sign of productivity I guess in that instance editing it's more like if I've edited a chapter that feels like a good kind of amount of work 
And when you say you're editing, I mean, do you is this a self-imposed edit or have you written a first draft of a new thing and um, sent it off? Yes, yeah, so it's a first draft of a new thing. Um, so I'm working on uh, edits with my new editor and okay. publishing. Great, great. And when you are doing the first draft, do you just go straight through or do you start looking back and sort of um, preemptively editing? I try to go straight through, but I think realistically I probably do do a bit of editing as I go, more just because, you know, if I've had a weekend where I haven't done any work I need to sort of refresh myself of where I am and so I'll start reading what I've written again and naturally I'll see places where I think oh actually maybe I should say that instead um Mm. but I try to avoid doing any big structural things because I think you kind of just need to get it down and then can tweak it afterwards I think you don't want to lose too much of those initial ideas by and I think by second guessing yourself I think there can be a real tendency to you know if I went on how I feel on a bad day I would never finish anything because I'd just delete everything like it's awful I hate it Mm. but I have to kind of accept that actually I'll have a good day as well where I look back and think oh actually there's stuff here to work with Mm-hmm. I have to let you go soon because we're running out of time. But uh, before I do, what is next to you? I mean, you say you've just, you're working on a new book. I assume yes. it's a book. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us what's next for you? So yes, I guess, I mean, my plan is just to keep writing really. So I'm editing my third book at the moment. Um, unfortunately, I can't say too much about it, but I hope, you know, all future books really will have similar kind of things at the heart of them so kind of community friendship human relationships those are things I really care about um and the 24-hour cafe is out in hardback at the moment um so I'm kind of just doing a lot of um promo promo for that yeah yeah and and finally one final question uh which I ask everyone uh so if you've listened to the podcast you'll be familiar with it which is if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice uh, what would it be? It doesn't have to be one. Some advice. What would it be? <laughs> um, I guess in terms of writing specifically, I think it's just perseverance, you know, of yeah. just stick at it because, you know, there were times when I definitely felt like I was going to, I mean, I would never have given up on writing because it's just what I do. It's part of who I am, but maybe would have given up or um, or given up on getting specifically the Lido published um, so I'm really glad that I persevered with that and I would definitely tell my younger self um, to do that I think a more general thing is to get into exercise sooner I didn't do any exercise in kind of my teen years and my very early 20s and now that's just such a huge part of keeping myself well and happy but also I think really fuels the writing as well that mm. to be able to go out for a walk or a run and, and I'm not good at any sport when I run I'm running very slowly but it's just a way to um, clear my head and mm. I think makes me more energetic and creative which ultimately helps with the writing mm. 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 good advice good <laughs> advice uh, Libby thank you so much you've been such a joy to speak to and to everyone listening the 24-hour cafe is out now so do go and buy it uh, that's it from us thank you so much for listening to the Sunday Salon Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Zania. And more importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please, please, please do rate or review it. Uh, it really helps other people find it, boosts its position in the charts, and uh, it stops me checking obsessively uh, whether there are new ones. Um, so until next week, thank you very, very much and goodbye. <laughs>